Welcome to Between the Lines, a podcast about sports and the law with your host, me, Gabe Feldman. For those of you who don't know me, I'm a law professor at Tulane Law School, the director of the Tulane Sports Law Program. I've been the on-air legal analyst for the NFL Network for 10 years, and I wrote a sports law column for the old Grantland website. I am really excited to be the last person in the country to have their own podcast, but I think this should be fun, entertaining, and educational. And I'm going to take a look at issues that are going on right now in the sports world and try to tell the largely untold and often misunderstood legal story behind the headlines. I'm also going to be looking at some of the really important sports stories and lawsuits that have been overlooked or forgotten to try to help everyone understand why and how these cases and these stories have had such a big impact on the sports world and beyond. So who is this podcast for? I think at least three different types of audiences will be interested. First, sports fans who want to understand more about sports. My belief is that you can't really understand sports without understanding how the law applies to sports. There's a basic fact that gets overlooked by many sports fans. And that fact is that most of the rules in sports, from salary caps to free agency restrictions to TV deals to franchise relocation requirements, the NCAA amateurism rules. Those are the way they are because of the law and not just because teams, leagues, or players want them that way. So this podcast will help you become a better and more educated sports fan. The second audience this is for, people who may or may not like sports, but who want to explore the idea of sports as a mirror of society. What can sports tell us about bigger social, financial, and political issues? One of the many examples I'll look at is return to play issues for college and pro sports. What's driving those issues? And we'll talk about what it means in terms of how we value the health and safety of our students, the role of athletics and education, economic and civil rights, the role of sports generally in society. And the third audience is my mom, because she likes to hear me talk. So let's get on with the pod. Here we go. This is my first official podcast with my first ever guest, my good friend, Jessica Berman. She is the highest ranking woman in men's professional sports. When I was thinking about starting a podcast, I thought who better to start with than my friend, Jessica Berman. And that's not a rhetorical question. So Jessica, who would I have been better off starting with? than I'd like to know. I can't think of anyone other than maybe your wife and children. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. I feel so honored. You should feel honored. It's an honor. So let's uh, let's jump right into it. I want to give a little quick background on Jessica. She's a deputy commissioner and executive vice president of business affairs for the National Lacrosse League. And I have been quoted, as have others, saying that Jessica will be the first female commissioner of a major men's pro league in the United States. And I just want to say for the record, a lot of podcast hosts do research on what their guests have said. I have done research on what I have said about you. That's how seriously I've, I'm taking this podcast. Before she joined the National Lacrosse League, she was at the NHL for 13 years as vice president and deputy general counsel, and then vice president of community development, culture, and growth, and executive director of the NHL Foundation. So I want to talk more about your work in sport and society, but I want to start with your role at the National Lacrosse League and have us, have you give us an inside look at 
a league's decision making to postpone and then cancel and then work on restarting a league in the middle of the worst health crisis any of us has ever been alive through. So let's let's start from the beginning. You start with the NLL in August 2019, right? Yes. And I, you, you can tell us later about some of your pre-pandemic roles, but six months into the job, you're hit with, we're all hit with COVID. So take us back to late February, early March. You're watching all this develop. And what are the conversations? Who's in the room? What, what are you talking about? What are the contingency plans? How, how does this happen? Yeah, well, coming into COVID-19, we were on track for a record-breaking season by all KPIs, both revenue and relevance. We had continued to build out our executive team. Our expansion strategy was on track. Ticket sales, BR Live viewership, sponsorship, commercial business, everything was really cruising along uh, based in part on the momentum built by Nick Sikavich and the team that preceded me. And we were really excited to have a record-breaking year and to go into what is the most exciting part of our season, like most team sports, which is the drive for the playoffs and ultimately the playoffs to crown a champion. When COVID-19 began to be a initially a whisper and then a chatter. Uh, I I was uh, certainly we were certainly in the camp the week prior to the day the world changed, which I always say is the day that not just the NBA shut down, but when Tom Hanks announced he had COVID. Those are the sort of the two defining moments for me that made everybody pause, literally. And the week prior, we had been aware of it enough that we had made an affirmative decision to proceed with the weekend's games and our league plays only on weekends. So we have the liberty of being able to sort of recalibrate and regroup in the week prior to decide how we want to handle the next week's games, more like the NFL in that way. And so we proceeded with that week and we sent out some communications about uh, opening lines of communication in the event there were any issues and just sort of flagging this for people. Um, but I, I don't think really, other than the NBA, who, from my understanding and conversations with them, they probably had greater visibility than most because of their business in China. Uh, so they were, I think, much more aware of the significance of it and had more time, I think, to wrap their head around the impact and what this could be than most of us did. I mean, we think of ourselves as a global industry and a global economy, but I think for me, this was a moment where I realized how uh, in the weeds we all are with our day-to-day life, because looking back, it's kind of shocking how little we all knew and understood coming into the second week of March. I, I'm not sure how that's possible, but you know, I guess we all had busy lives and it seemed like it was easier to sort of push it off or not or not take it as seriously as maybe we should have been told to take it seriously or we should have known to take it seriously. But that day the world changed. Um, we immediately sprung into action and paused our season. We knew that um, there was no choice but to do that and sort of give us a moment to recalibrate and decide how to proceed. 
Um, that was a fairly easy. Decision. Wait, but hold on before let me cut you off. So that is, are you watching the NBA game, that jazz game, and you see it get canceled and then you say, we've got to cancel. I was actually, if you want to know literally what I was, I doing, literally, I literally want to know. I'm going to bring you into my house, my home. This is cool. I said, we want an inside look. This is okay. inside. I was, uh, had just put my kids to bed and I was on the phone with our union. What talking. book did you read to them before you put them to bed? Paint <laughs> us the full <laughs> picture. My kids are too old to be read to. Uh, okay. They read themselves. So you, you have that power too. But uh, they, their lights were out and I was on the phone with our union, which for those who know me probably wouldn't surprise most. Um, and it was actually our union uh, executive director who said, are you following what's going on in the jazz game? And I was like, no, I'm talking to you. Why are you multitasking? No, just kidding. So I, I immediately opened my Twitter while we were on the phone and saw what was going on. So that, that was the moment that it was like, wow. And then I, of course I hung up with them and quickly called my boss, Nick, the commissioner and was like, we got to take some action here. Um, and it was actually the moment where I realized, uh, you know, how sort of streamlined our league operation is because we're a team of, you know, 15 to 20 full-time employees at our league office. We have 13 teams and um, pausing our season was a pretty relatively, at least from my experience coming from the NHL, which is a massive, massive operation was a pretty streamlined decision. And we were able to pivot very quickly so when you're making that decision to pause, to postpone, because that was your first decision, NBA shuts down, you shut down. Is it just let's stop and then we'll figure out what this means in terms of all of our contracts and player salaries and arena deals? Or have you thought about that ahead of time and now you're able to to enact that plan or it's let's stop and then figure out what we're going to do? It was, we have to pause, um, particularly because if, if memory serves me right, it was at least midweek, um, right? Maybe it was Thursday. It was either a Wednesday or Thursday, I think. And uh, our players travel for the weekend, like that day, typically. And so it was an immediate, like this is an, basically an emergency situation. We have to pause and then regroup on, you know, what are the, consequences intended and unintended from this. Um, I have said internally through that crisis that I felt like I was a, almost an expert in work stoppages, having gone through several, obviously from a labor dispute is a very different. Those are, yeah. Man-made versus bat-made. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> very different um, cause, but in, in a lot of ways, very similar in terms of the types of communication that help stakeholders and constituents to manage through a period of uncertainty in the operation of the business. So the first thing I did was start to develop a frequently asked questions document, which I was responsible for when I was at the NHL during our last work stoppage. And so um, we had that ready to go pretty quickly. I've actually gone back to review that a couple of times just to, to, I think the point of, you know, what you're getting at, which is like, what was our mindset in that moment? Um, did we really understand it was going to be what it's become? And the answer is definitely not, because in that communication, which, of course, ended up being memorialized and sent out to the team, so it lives in perpetuity, is our references to 
uh, implications that this was much more short term than I think we all thought it would be. It, it said things like, you know, we're canceled through um, next weekend at least, and then we'll be in touch. You know, I, I think it, we thought it was a more like t- kind of day to day evaluation type thing as opposed to, you know, what it what it obviously is. Right. And you weren't alone. I mean, if you look back at all the communications you probably received about your children's school, it was we're closed for now, but we're, we'll reevaluate at the end of March. Right. And now it feels like maybe March 2021 is what they were talking about. But I hope that's not true. Too. But did you and we'll get to that. We'll get to the school issue a little bit later on. But did you in the in the next few days and weeks as you're trying to figure out whether this is going to be a longer term situation, who are you then talking to beyond your commissioner and the team? Are you reaching out to, do you have medical advisors for the league? Are you reaching out to, um, to Gary Bettman and Bill Daly or your former colleagues and friends at the NHL? Who, what, what conversations are happening at that point? Absolutely. And, you know, that was my practice day, daily practice when I was even at the NHL, which was to seek, best practices and input across the industry. You know, I've I've often said being an executive in the sports industry, it's not rocket science. You know, we, it's sort of similar, our constructs. And so um, knowing how each other are handling this situation is helpful, I think, to all of us um, to talk it through. And so I was in touch with all of the leagues and um, to get an understanding of their approach, um, as, as well as uh, some of the more non-traditional leagues like UFC and WWE and, you know, some of the the ones that it turned out, NASCAR, some of the ones that have taken a slightly different approach um, to, the, to the return in the short and medium term, um, which has been helpful to sort of calibrate across the landscape. But I would say the most of the conversations were with our teams and internally um, and, you know, really just finding a process to synthesize and digest the overwhelming amount of information that was being reported on. I, I think now it's sort of hit a, a better cadence, but in those early weeks, like March 15 to April 15, well, maybe even May 15, like those eight weeks, so overwhelming um, to understand like what is what is just chatter, what is sort of consensus, what's a prevailing view, what's reliable, what's not reliable. I actually spent a weekend, the second weekend of April, uh, drafting a white paper to just help myself organize my thoughts as to what are the biggest challenges, what should be our key focus areas about how to approach this, where do we need research done, um, who else should we be seeking input from, because, you know, it, it, we didn't want the situation where the tail was wagging the dog. We, we needed to have a strategic, intentional approach to this. And so um, that started, I think, the beginning of our strategy, which was to convene an internal and external post-COVID-19 committee that um, is still in, in operation, where we're gathering ideas and inputs, mostly around three verticals. They are the in-person viewer experience in the arena, the at-home viewer experience, 
and the commercial landscape all through the lens of post-COVID? How is COVID-19 going to impact those three streams and verticals as it relates to our business and operations as well as our revenue? So let, let's talk about that a, a little bit to the extent you can. And so it's it's March 12th, that night, the NBA, the world changes. Tom Hanks first and then Rudy Gobert. And what, what's remarkable about, I remember I was watching the Jazz game and I was getting ready to watch the Pelicans game. I live in New Orleans, which was later that night. They canceled the Jazz game. They canceled the season indefinitely, but they were going to play the Pelicans game that night, even after they canceled the Jazz game. And then it turned out one of the refs from the Jazz game Previously, it was refing that game that night, so they decided to cancel the Pelicans game. But that sort of indication of how we thought, ah, you have to cancel this game, but maybe it's not that big of a deal. We'll all be back soon. So you go from that to this is not going away soon, and it's April, and you make the decision to cancel the season. Right? With, with a, what was it, eight-ish, six to eight games left in the regular season and then, and then the playoffs? Um, we we had finished about um, 68% of our season. So about 68%, about uh, not exactly 68%. Okay. So you've, you're at that point and you, you decide to cancel the season and, and what's the, the breaking point at that point? What, why to cancel and not to de- continue to delay? Yeah. That out of the sequence of decisions that had to be made, the cancellation of the regular season was the hardest one because um, I think, it was, it required some acceptance of how dire and grave the situation was. You know, my, my, my mom's a psychologist, so I, I tend to view things through that lens and I have a, a fond saying, and this is true for me and other people as well that I, that I often cite, which is when emotion is high, cognition is low. And I think people were very triggered by this, both because they were fearful of their own health, their own vulnerabilities, their own day-to-day um, lack of social contact. I, I think we're all human human beings are, are social by nature. I don't think we do well in isolation. And so, you know, there was just a lot of circumstances that were leading people to just having a hard time wrapping their head around the, the gravity of the situation. So all of those factors, plus you know, hearing rumors that all the other leagues, which now is coming to pass, that all the other leagues are going to try to save their season and feeling that sort of self-imposed pressure and desire to deliver the product to our fans and hearing from our fans that they want us to come back and everybody wanting to believe that we can deliver some something that indicates a semblance of normality. So you're balancing all of those things with the reality of the situation, which is that we're a challenger property that relies significantly, not exclusively, we we have a media rights deal with Turner where we're paid revenue. So we, we have revenue associated with our national media rights, which is great, but a significant portion of our revenue is from ticket sales. And so for us to put on these games is, would would be a lofty proposition from a investment standpoint but the next piece which you know frankly I think was the tipping point for people and I was really thankful for my background at the NHL for for the preparation required for this decision is like what would be required to to actually put this on like how are we going to 
operationalize an event that's going to require testing and protocols and health and safety measures and medical staff and bubble. And so as our board was discussing and debating this, and we certainly had people who really were pushing for us to play, I decided to just put on paper what would be required, not the actual policies, but an outline of the policies. And as I'm sure you've seen in what's been reported, you know, some of the other leagues post-COVID-19 protocols are between 60 and 130 pages. So our outline of what that protocol would be was like seven pages. That was just like the bullet points of what we would have to flesh out. And I think when people realize what would be required plus the revenue side of it, it just just didn't make a lot of sense. And, you know, we thankfully, you know, we're not, we weren't beholden to any um, obligations that would have required us to make what would have been, I think, a a not smart business decision. So that, tell me more about that, that you, you weren't, you didn't have any sort of the, the financial hit from canceling the season at that point, you're saying was not significant other than in lost revenue, but there weren't contractual obligations you had to fulfill or sponsors to call or, or Turner to negotiate with. Well, to a limited extent for some of those, but for the most part, our sponsors were, um, we were able to recalibrate with them and to kind of over deliver in other ways through our content and really thankful for our internal content and marketing team who pivoted immediately during a time when we would normally be almost exclusively relying on game action for our content. All of our content immediately shifted and we were able to incorporate a lot of our sponsor and deliver assets to them that, for make goods. Um, But no, you know, the other leagues and, you know, I, I'll be the first to say it's a great problem to have there. They have huge media contracts that rely on games being played. And um, sure. We'd love to have that problem, but in this particular situation, it was helpful to not have that pressure because it it just wouldn't have made sense for us. So of all the issues you had to deal with in that period, the, the, end of February to April, what, give us something that we would not have realized you had to deal with that turned out to be difficult or complex that we just, we wouldn't understand or couldn't um, imagine it unless we were inside a league making a decision like this. Um, you know, and, and I, I guess in thinking about the answer to that question, I'm, thinking about like what I told my kids is they were like sitting and listening from the dining room who now, by the way, if, if you could figure out a way to like pay them off, you can get a lot of insight information. They were, they were like, they knew more about like the nitty gritty of this whole process than they ever should have known, but you know, such is life in quarantine. But, um, you know, I think for them, you know, with what they kept asking me, so maybe this is the answer to your question is they were sort of fascinated by, um, like the individual nature of like how the sausage gets made, you know, each individual owner is just, you know, it's like the us weekly page, you know, they're just like us, you know, um, I always think of that, like, no matter how much money or power someone has they're they're just people, right. And each of their motivations are different. And each has a different sort of lever that needs to be identified and and negotiated 
um, to get to the right answer for the league. And a lot of those conversations were going on. And so, you know, as my kids were watching me sort of deal with all these different interests and personalities and trying to sort of corral, corral everyone, um, that's what they were sort of amazed by. And then, you know, you get on the board call and it's like, you know, all that preliminary work is, you know, you, you know that it was necessary to lay the groundwork for the decision to be made. Okay. So let's talk about now you've gone through postpone, cancel, and now working on restarting the next season. And you're doing it. It's now July 17th. And we are at a state where there is no national, clear national plan on how to reopen society safely. And we've seen lots of disagreement about how to do it. Uh, one of the European soccer leagues, their medical expert said, the aim must not be to guarantee the 100% safety of all participants, since this is likely to prove impossible. The idea is to ensure a medically justifiable risk based on the significance of the sport in societal, sociopolitical, and economic terms, and on the development of the pandemic. So we've got still unbelievable uncertainty and things changing by the day. And going back to that NBA shutdown, I don't remember, but Mark Cuban on the morning of the 12th was asked about the chances that the league would shut down. And he said about five to 10% was a chance because he's just like, we've got this under control. And then that night they shut down. So things are, and, and we're, we don't feel like we'll have much more certainty today as we did in, than we did in, in March. Um, and in fact, I think in March, we at least had some hope that by July, we have it under control. And given that we don't, it, it's, it's almost a worse feeling. But given all of that, I know you've announced dates for draft and for things that can happen in the offseason. But how do you go about figuring out when and how to restart the season, given that I, I imagine you have to still account for all of those issues you talked about before that are in that seven page outline of reopening and the potential of a bubble and testing and and all those other issues that pop up. Yeah. Well, a, a couple of things. I think for us, you know, given that um, we have a slightly shorter, not slightly, a much shorter season than most of the major leagues, I think we have more flexibility and we're certainly looking at pushing back the start of our season. And I think, you know, we can do that pretty easily, sort of like the decision to shut down, you know, our, our league, one of the things I love about my new role is how nimble our league is. I, I don't know that others who have been there for 20 years think that we're nimble, but I, I told them to go work at one of the major leagues if they want to, <laughs> if they want to feel better about our, our red tape or our process. Um, and so, you know, it's as simple as that. Like Nick and I talk about that it's important. We get feedback from our head of lacrosse operations, our head of broadcast, our head of marketing, talk about it with the teams and out, you know, so be it. The policy is new. And um, and so I, I think that there's certainly consensus that time is, your, is our friend. Um, and, you know, I'm holding out hope that, you talked about hope earlier. I'm holding out hope that we'll have a vaccine in place in the short term. I know you're a pessimist, so I don't want to hear your opinion. 
about <laughs> I don't want to hear your opinion about whether you think that we'll have a vaccine before the end of 2020. I only ask that question to people who I know are optimists because I don't I don't I don't I don't want the naysayers. There's a difference between being a hypochondriac and being a pessimist. I am an optimistic hypochondriac. Okay. I'm optimistic okay. we'll have a vaccine soon so I can stop being so terrified. <laughs> oh good. Good. <laughs> Um, well, that's probably good for your mental health, but we can do another podcast. That's a, yes, yes. Another time. I, I'll Maybe interview. Get, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I'll get a couch. Yeah, okay. <laughs> so I, I think, you know, definitely pushing out the start of our season is is important. And um, we are absolutely looking at that. I think given the way our country has approached the return, let's call it, return to work, return to operations, return to normalcy, which has been obviously very locally driven as opposed to federally driven. Um, and again, we don't have to debate that from a political perspective, but um, you know, we anticipate, just like the NFL has talked about, that there's going to be differentiation between the markets about what's possible. And so we took the steps of... Um, sending out an RFP to get proposals from neutral site arenas that we can leverage for fallback if we need to shift our schedule. Um, so I, I, th I guess that should give you an indication of where our head is at. And hopefully we won't replay this in seven months and say, God, she was really delusional on July 17th, but it should give you a sense of where our head is at which is that we expect to have our season. We expect to be able to have fans, you know, if there are limitations on how many fans we can put in the arena for social distancing and other appropriate mitigating factors, we'll obviously be prepared to do that. And, you know, we'll expect to be operational for next season. So uh, on that note, um, lacrosse and I, I know you've said things along those lines and part of why you're in the position you are now uh, lacrosse is the sport of the future right? a lot of people say lacrosse is the sport of the future my, my question is it's, it's a two-part question one is uh, dip and dots as you know is the ice cream of the future and it's been the ice cream of the future for like 50 years so i, I just wonder when is the future are we in the future maybe not because dip and dots are not. anyway um how does what what's the path to lacrosse becoming the sport or one of the major four or five? And what does the pandemic do? Obviously, it creates obstacles for every league, but is is there some way that this actually creates an opportunity for you guys to accelerate the growth of the sport? Yeah, um, good good question. And I I really don't like dip and dots. My kids do though, so I wonder if the next generation likes dip and dots. But I think we were the next generation at one point. We were I mean, kids we when it first came out. We needed another generation, maybe. I don't know. Um, but I would say that, you know, the what we've seen in the last five years with what we call the tailwinds of the growth of lacrosse at the grassroots level is certainly going to sort of catapult the sport forward from a growth perspective. We've also seen in the last five years from an NCAA standpoint, more lacrosse teams be added than any other sport for men's and women's. Um, and it's been the case to your point for at least a decade that uh, 
fans of the sport of lacrosse perceive the college game as sort of the top of the pyramid. How do we show the lacrosse community that the top of the pyramid is actually the pro game? Uh, we know that the PLL came on the scene last summer and from our perspective, that's a good thing for the sport. It gives a lot of our players who play in both of our leagues the opportunity to earn an income on a year-round basis, which is great. Uh, we are in discussions with them on a weekly basis about opportunities for us to collaborate. So to say it another way, we don't view them as competition. Um, there's also the MLL, which is also playing. Um, I'll, I'll leave it to them to talk about their relationship with one another, but we've remained agnostic between them. And we have players who play in both leagues and we support and promote our players during their play in both of those leagues. So, um, you know, I think that will help to take up a bigger footprint, ultimately how that all shakes out in, in the future in terms of what leagues remain and all of that is, you know, that that's, someone will have to look in a, in a crystal ball and make that assessment. But um, I do think that leveraging the college players will be a key to that because they have such high visibility. I think um, our expansion from an NLL perspective, growing our footprint across North America is key, will be key. And in the last four years, we've expanded from nine to 13 teams and, uh, we'll be announcing expansion, knock on wood, um, hopefully in the not too distant future. So, um, is that breaking news? Did we just break news on this? No. Well, I didn't, I didn't say anything except that I expect to be announcing expansion in the not too distant future. And then I knocked on wood on my head. So, um, it's not, it's not done until it's done, but, uh, we're, we're moving along and we've, Nick's, said from our commissioner has said from the time he was hired that he wanted to be at 16 teams by 2023. So we're on track for that goal. And I do think the expansion of that footprint will help with our relevance to your point of becoming a major four or five, certainly help with our media contract, which will help with our relevance and revenue. Um, but I think the most important point that I would emphasize for the NLL, that's really a distinguisher between us and the other lacrosse leagues is that unlike the field game almost 70 percent of our fans are actually not lacrosse people so we tend to attract more often than not an entertainment seeker and event goer who just likes the action of our game one of our teams the calgary roughnecks their marketing tagline is come for the party stay for the game and when I describe our sport and now having been to a bunch of games, thankfully, before we hit the pause, it's really true. It is just so much fun. It's a cross between the NBA, minor league baseball, and hockey. And it's just all about the fan experience, all about it. And um, while no one would suggest that our players are not the best in the world because they are. It's really about the, the entertainment. The fans just love it. We did a fan survey last year and 65% uh, of our fans said that 
their favorite sports team out of any sports team that they're a fan of is their NLL team. And I was like, wow, that's unbelievable. It kind of reminds me of the NHL of like the 80s and 90s when people were like, they have such tribal and avid fans, but there are no casual fans. That's kind of where we are, I would say, in our growth trajectory. And, you know, another good indicator for us that sort of brings together all the topics we were talking about is that when we canceled our season and offered, we made it a a point to offer any of our fans who wanted a refund the opportunity to get their money back, 81% of our season ticket holders rolled their money over into next year. And so to me, you know, when I think about planning for next year, am I delusional or is it really like, are our fans ready to come back? I just, I have that stat on my, on a post-it in front of my computer, because to me, it's the best indicator. It makes me the most hopeful and optimistic that our fans are ready to return because we didn't ask them like, hypothetically, if you were asked to go to a game, would you buy a ticket? No, our fans actually kept their money with the team. They want to come. They're ready to come back. And particularly with unemployment rates where they are and all of that, I thought that was just you know a take-home stat that we can't say enough internally to help us feel good about where our business is at. Yeah, no, that's a great sign. And I have to say that my law school classes are usually described as a cross between the NBA, minor league baseball, and the NHL. So I can I can relate to that to that analogy. Uh, one last question, and then I'll let you go. But I, but I know you spent a lot of your career both at the NHL and then just more generally thinking about the role of sport in society and sport and social justice issues. So the what's going on in the country now and the, the killing of George Floyd and social justice issues and, and Black, Lives Ladder, Black Lives Matter movement in a league like the NLL, which obviously the, the demographics of the players are, are different than the NBA and the NFL and are probably closer to the NHL. Um, what what are the discussions internally and with the players about their their role in this their their opportunity? What what kind of what do you do to educate the, the players and the and the staff and the, and the owners um, in this? You know, the, I could say maybe the, the best thing we can say about what's happening right now is that it's they're teaching opportunities for for people to understand more about the issues that that black people go through and, and just racial issues in this country. So how has that played out with, um, with your players in your league? Yeah, well, uh, you know, this is an issue that's near and dear to my heart and having grown up in Brooklyn where I was the minority and my best friends in high school were black. I really have a deep appreciation for how much we don't understand um, and I, I'm constantly on a learning journey. I'm, I'm reading white fragility right now. I'm so am I, I have a book club, a white fragility book club tonight. Can I join? No, I'm not. Yes. I, I don't want to. All right. We'll talk about that. Later. <laughs> okay. I I'm, I'm not far enough along. I'm like halfway through, but, um, you know, I, I'm just constantly seeking out opportunities to have empathy and increase self-awareness, which is, I think, the two keys to this, right? It's like, know what you don't know, ask questions. It's okay to not understand. Uh, You can't possibly be expected to understand what it's like to live in someone else's shoes. And I'm so encouraged in our league, genuinely encouraged by 
the outreach from influencers, both at the player ranks, as well as the ownership ranks, head coaches who have called me to say, some of whom to say, I've, you know, I, I've been thinking about this issue and I'd, I'd like to be involved in a solution. And others who've said, I, I'm really embarrassed to know nothing about this issue, but clearly there's something for me to know. Can, what can I do to be better? And so uh, we're enacting a three-part strategy uh, right now that involves uh, first listening and learning um, which we're in the process of doing. Second, a robust education program focused on focused on cultural competency and self-awareness and empathy and understanding history. And the third is a, a league-wide, first ever league-wide CSR program focused on inclusion and other social impact goals. So um, this is what I did at the NHL my last four years. So uh, and this, to be honest, this had been in the plan for this fiscal 21 in any event, even before George Floyd. This is part of the reason Nick hired me was to bring these culture and inclusion issues front and center for the league, knowing particularly for the NLL that our sports foundation is in the indigenous community. And so it is an indigenous sport. And if you talk, despite the fact that our players, it's true, are predominantly white Every single one of them, if you ask them any questions about the culture of the game, culture of our league, the culture of the sport, the first thing they will tell you is you can't have a conversation about the culture of lacrosse without understanding its roots, which are in the indigenous community. It is so ingrained in the players that, you know, when you talk about developing a strategy that is built around education, it has to be authentic. And it we have the bones for a truly robust, authentic program, because that's what that's what they all say. Every single one, like don't develop anything without talking to people who understand the roots of our game, because otherwise it won't resonate. And um, that comes from players who are black, players who are indigenous and players who are white. They all say the same thing. So um, in that way, I feel like there's alignment around this and a real interest and enthusiasm to do something. That's great. Um, Last question. You said that was the last question. Yeah, yeah, but that I'm was charging you for this one. Was, okay, okay, fair enough. Um, the this isn't really a question; it's a quick question. It okay. Doesn't count as a full question. You have talked about the importance of mentors and having a, a, a team to help you and your own personal board and stuff, and the mentors you you usually list. And this is going to be a hard question to answer, but I but I want you to answer it as best as you can. So. I think it's fair to say your your the the most important mentors professionally in your in your life have been Bob Adderman, who you worked with closely at Prosco, yeah. Bill Daly, yes, Gary Bettman, and yeah. Kim Davis, yes, and me, and so you. and me. So among those five, who's been the most influential? You, Gabe, obviously. Okay. Okay. Um, thank you. <laughs> and th- and thank you to Jessica for joining. <laughs> I will say we grew up in the industry together. And so, you know, I, I, I think in this, will are be, we grown up? Does that mean we're grown up? We we are. I'm sad to say it, but we are, we're grown ups now. No one's mistaking me for an intern anymore. I don't know when that changed, but I used to want to look older and that's, those days are done. But, you know, my, the, my thought on mentors is that um, as I've gotten more seasoned, let's say, in the industry, I've realized that mentors can come from 
a host of different directions. It can be people who are senior to you. It can be people who are junior to you. And in your case, it can be your peers. And I really have, um, at this point in my career, I feel like I'm surrounded by all types of feedback that are helpful in my development. Um, and I, I, I always urge people to kind of look up, look across, look down, look around and see what you can glean that will make you better because it, it's really all around us and it's, it's right there for the taking. You just have to invest the time in the relationships. So the answer is me. Okay, yeah, great. So no, that's, yeah. I'm so embarrassed, but it's true. <laughs> all right. I, I've taken up more of your precious time than I had planned to. We didn't get a chance to talk about your family and life with two kids in a pandemic, but we'll save that for the next time. Thank you very much for being my first and best guest ever on this podcast. <laughs> how do how do people follow the NLL and you? Uh, at Jessica Berman one on Twitter and at NLL on all social platforms. So would appreciate the follow. And at Jessica Berman two is also a good follow, just in case you're looking for just good Jessica <laughs> Berman content. When you post it. <laughs> Thank you, Jessica. It was great. I to appreciate be. it. Be well. I'm proud of you. I'm proud of me too. <laughs>